Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century, and by the grace of God was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. This week's flowetry selection is in memory of Hazrat Hafiz. May God be pleased with him. If a person is seeking reward, stay away from the path of lovers since such thoughts spoil the play. Love must not be contaminated by desire, and all intentions will be tested in life's fire. Become content with risking everything for love. Don't be concerned with hell below or heaven above. People have gone mad while pursuing worldly dreams. Become mad with love for things are not as they seem. When young we forget that youth will soon disappear into the lowly depths of a time we all fear. Love is eternal and will stay beyond life's end, so give up your delusions and embrace the friend. Some think that strength and power are all that one needs. The armor of seekers is made from loving deeds. The wail of separation comes from deep within, who will hear one's lament amidst this worldly din? We are all consumed with our own lonely affair, yet there is one who listens and is always there. Waiting and watching and pouring the secret wine into a cup of love that is marked with a sign that will be known by those who are willing to drink, depart from your obsession with having to think. Our senses are clogged with residues of the day, as food, sleep, feelings, or comforts all have their say. The heart, soul, and spirit have all been swept aside while being inundated by a worldly tide. Take passage on love's ship and become a deckhand, for work, not money, is what transports you from land. Glide through true waters beyond reefs of falsity. Wash down the ego's deck, lower the flag of me. Don't worry about your reputation on shore, for complaints often are made about those who may soar. Ground yourself in the ocean of divinity. Don't fear what awaits in waters of mystery. Swim towards the light-filled depths and forget surface waves. Explore the treasures that lie waiting in love's caves. Do understand that the molecules of the sea are bound together by forces of purity. Love's attractive nature makes the waters as one mirror that reflects endless beauty from the sun. And love's presence is what holds together one's life, 
when the soul is buffeted with the winds of strife. Storms, placid seas, and rolling waves are all part of the tale that discloses meanings to your heart. The journey does not go from worldly place to place, but rather guides one through stations of inner grace. Our cups are made with elements of Adam's clay, but the wine which it holds comes through Muhammad's way. Thoughts are cast in the mold of Hafiz's adab, but they are expressed through the colors of a nab. Today's short story is called As Many Loaves. A woman and her husband had been trying to conceive a child for many years but without success. They had gone to all manner of doctors and clinics seeking a solution to their difficulty. Unfortunately, no one had been able to help them. In desperation, the woman took it upon herself to visit a very powerful and spiritually gifted servant of God. If the practitioners of medicine and science could not resolve her problem, Perhaps a spiritual saint would be able to do so. When she found herself before the great man of the mystical path, she pleaded her case. She recounted all that she and her husband had been through in an effort to have at least one child, if not more, and yet here she was, still barren. The friend of God closed his eyes, and his concentration was such that he appeared to be transported to some other realm. A few moments later, he opened his eyes, looked at the woman with great compassion, and said, My daughter, I am very sorry to say that the book of destiny indicates you will have no children during your life on earth. There is nothing which I can do. I cannot change what God has ordained. No one can. Please accept my sincere condolences, for I do see how deeply you long for children, and it breaks my heart to have to be the bearer. Of such news. If there were anything which God's gifts permitted me to do in this manner, I would do so in an instant, but my spiritual hands are tied with respect to the problem that you have brought to me. The woman cried when she heard the saint's words. Surely if this man of God could do nothing for her and her husband, then what hope could they have? The chapter on this phase of her life seemed to have ended with a painful ache that would cast a shadow over the remainder of her life as she saw other women enjoying their children on a daily basis. In deep sadness and despair she left the saint and wandered out into the streets. She stumbled along oblivious to her surroundings. From somewhere within her consciousness she heard as many loaves of bread as you bake for me, you will be given children. The sentence kept being repeated. The woman was startled. Was she dreaming? Who was saying this? Was it real? Becoming aware of her surroundings, the woman realized the words she had been hearing were being spoken by a beggar sitting by the side of the road. The man didn't seem to be speaking to anyone in particular, but like a sort of street vendor, he was announcing to anyone who might be interested what he had to offer as well as what he expected in return. Like a mantra, he kept saying, 
As many loaves of bread as you bake for me, you will be given children. The idea seemed preposterous. Science couldn't help her. Medicine couldn't help her. A saint not only couldn't help her, but had just told her that her destiny was devoid of children. So how could a miserable beggar help her when he couldn't even help himself be other than a beggar? Yet desperation makes people try strange things and take implausible chances. Furthermore, even if the whole thing were a con, she would lose nothing more than a little time in the cost of making some bread. She approached the beggar and asked him, Is your offer genuine? He kept his head lowered and nodded, Yes. He then repeated his offer to no one in particular, as if the woman were interrupting his business activity by coming between him and other people eagerly wishing to take him up on his pronouncement. The woman asked the beggar if he would be in this place again tomorrow. The man's head was still lowered, but he shook it affirmatively. Having little to lose, the woman rushed home and began to prepare dough for baking. As she did so, she tried to counsel herself that she should not get her hopes up, and that the whole exercise was rather foolish, and yet there was an undercurrent of optimism in her actions. She baked eight loaves of bread. The next morning she took the physical manifestation of her efforts to the street on which the beggar had been the previous day, and she was relieved to find him there, still spouting the same sentence as he had the day before. As many loaves of bread as you bake for me, you will be given children. The woman placed the several bags of baked bread in front of the beggar. The man rose, picking up the bags as he did, and with head still lowered in humility said, So it shall be, and walked away. The woman knew that the beggar was not like a department store where one could go and complain if dissatisfied with the services. She suspected she was seeing the last of the man, her bread, and her hopes. She began trying to resign herself to her fate. A few months later, she became pregnant with her first child. Over the next nine years, she had eight children in all, precisely the same number as the loaves of bread she had baked for the beggar. One day, many years later, the woman was walking down a street with her children in tow. They ranged in age from 17 down to eight. A man stopped her in the street, and she recognized the man as the great saint to whom she had gone so many years ago the one who had informed her that the Book of Destiny indicated she would have no children. She bore the man no ill will since she was very thankful to God for having answered her prayers with respect to children, and in addition, she really didn't have any idea of what the problem had been when he said what he did, but believed the man to have been sincere, compassionate, and kind with her. The saint looked back and forth between the woman and the children near her, finally asking, Whose children are these? They are mine and my husband's, she said proudly. Did you bear these children, the man inquired, or did you adopt them? She was somewhat mystified at the saint's questions, but answered, No, I didn't adopt them. They are all my natural children. The saint looked at the woman in shock. He shook his head and said, This, this can't be, and yet it is. 
He asked her what had happened. The woman explained about what had transpired after she had left the saint and how the beggar had promised that as many children would be given as a person baked loaves of bread for him. The servant of God apologized to the woman for carrying on as he had. He congratulated her on her good fortune and left. As soon as he was out of sight of the woman, the saint collapsed in a set of stairs leading up into an apartment building. He laid his head in his hands with his palms resting against his forehead and wondered how what he had just witnessed could be the case. He was a little irritated. He thought he was a friend of God. Somehow, however, he seemed to have been excluded from knowing some secret with respect to this woman. When he had looked at her those many years ago, the Book of Destiny clearly had shown there were no children appearing next to the name of this woman. On the other hand, he just experienced the reality that was showing something very different from what he had seen in the spiritual realm. He was feeling dejected and lonely. With head buried in his hands, he heard, As many loaves of bread as you bake for me, you will be given children. The saint knew right away it was the same man as the woman had described. Perhaps the beggar had come to taunt the saint about the state of affairs. He went over to the man and kneeled down next to him. The beggar's head was lowered, and the man just kept saying the same thing again and again, taking no notice of the saint. The friend of God could sense the beggar's high degree of spirituality and sought the man's permission to speak. The beggar stopped hawking his offer and was silent, awaiting the saint's words. The saint asked, How, by the grace of God, did this woman end up with eight children when the Book of Destiny indicated she would have no children? The man, whose head continued to remain lowered, remarked, You obviously are not very literate, my friend. The Book of Destiny did not show that the woman would have no children. The saint was taken back by the words. Sir, he said, I know what I saw many years ago. I'm not exactly sure what you mean by my lack of literacy. Well, said the beggar, if you really knew how to read the Book of Destiny, you should have realized the book did not indicate that the woman would have no children. Rather, the space next to her name was blank. When she brought eight loaves of bread to me, I merely filled in the amount next to her name in the Book of Destiny, and God completed the transaction. He said it in such a way as if he might have been saying, It's elementary, my dear Watson. He continued on, People of spiritual literacy know how to both read and write with respect to the Book of Destiny. Since apparently you do not know how to read and write in relation to that book, then presumably you lack a certain degree of literacy in such matters. When he had finished his explanation, he began repeating, As many loaves as you bake for me, you will be given children, to no one in particular. The following musical interlude is entitled Morning Haze.
I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Well, I suppose all offers can be refused, so I'll amend my opening statement and simply say, I'm going to make you an offer that I hope you won't refuse. I would like to offer you free, and I do mean free, access to all 40 books that I have written, plus 35 pieces of floetry that were composed over the years, as well as five videos and some podcast recordings covering different topics. This is all contained in the Bridge software that is available through my website, www.anab-whitehouse.com. If you go to my website, click the Bridge software choice on the drop-down menu one option, and then discover how to download the Bridge software for free, no strings attached. My hope is that you will like what you find in the software and therefore will be willing to come back and participate in my Patreon campaign to give books to various libraries. But even if you have no interest in supporting the foregoing Patreon campaign, nonetheless, the Bridge software is still yours to have for your personal reading, listening, and viewing experience. From high atop the north face of Mount Everest in the majestic and mysterious Himalayans, you are listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast. The title of today's meditative essay is Doubt. Doubt can be a valuable ally, or it can be a potent enemy. Knowing the difference can take one a long way. Under a variety of circumstances, there is nothing wrong with a healthy embrace of skepticism, questioning, doubt, or reserving judgment. Indeed, this can be quite beneficial, saving one, by the grace of God, from many difficulties and embarrassments. For example, if someone is known to lie on, say, a semi-regular but unpredictable basis, then to exercise caution concerning the declarations of such a person would seem to be a prudent thing to do. Whether that individual is an acquaintance, or a politician, or a government official, or a business associate, or a writer, or a religious figure, or whatever, to have doubts affords one a margin of protection. Doubt buys one some time. During this period of grace, one can check the alleged facts of an assertion. One can raise questions about inconsistencies and ambiguities. One can reserve judgment until one has had an opportunity to reflect on the statement and or until additional information is forthcoming, which may help resolve the issue. Having doubts can save one from rushing the judgment and making errors that a greater amount of circumspection might have prevented. Manifesting a certain degree of skepticism puts some objective distance between one and a given issue and permits one to be in a position to explore other alternatives. An interesting but troubling example of the semi-regular but unpredictable liar is ourselves. In one way or another, almost all of us lie. These statements of untruth may not necessarily be lies of some dark, malevolent purpose, but they are lies because they satisfy the conditions of what it means to lie. These statements distort the truth in some manner. 
Furthermore, this distortion is introduced knowingly by the individual. We lie to our spouses, we lie to our children, we lie to our parents, we lie to our friends, we lie to fellow workers, we lie to customers, we lie to tax officials, we lie to our lawyers, we lie to our doctors, we lie to ourselves. Sometimes we lie to spare someone's feelings. Sometimes we lie because the issue is too personal. Sometimes we lie to gain a tactical advantage. Sometimes we lie because we're embarrassed to tell the truth. Sometimes we lie in order to please others. Sometimes we lie to exploit or manipulate a situation. Sometimes we lie just to upset another person. Sometimes we lie because the truth sounds too unbelievable. Sometimes we lie to create a good impression of ourselves. Sometimes we lie because it seems simpler and less involved than telling the truth does. We lie to ourselves about the kind of person we are. We lie to ourselves about how fairly we treat other people. We lie to ourselves about how honest we are. We lie to ourselves about our values and commitments. We lie to ourselves about the extent of our compassion for other people. We lie to ourselves about the degree of our selfishness and inconsiderateness. We lie to ourselves about the nature of our love for God. We can lie to ourselves because the ego tries to sell falsehood as the truth, thus satisfying one of the two conditions for a lie, namely, to distort the truth. We know we are lying to ourselves because in our heart of hearts we are aware of what the ego is doing and why. The problem is, is that sometimes our awareness of our lying to ourselves is very weak and faint, and as a result, the lie carries the moment. Given time and the right circumstances and pressures, the lie may become accepted as truth. In light of the foregoing comments concerning the way we lie, one wonders why most of us don't tend to exercise more doubt and skepticism concerning our own pronouncements. After all, if one is being prudent to have doubts concerning other people who sometimes lie, then consistency demands we demonstrate the same degree of prudence with respect to ourselves. This is especially so in view of the fact we have more ample and direct evidence of our own lying than we have in relation to the possible lying of other people. Unfortunately, few of us embrace a healthy amount of skepticism and doubt concerning ourselves. Doubt is usually reserved for the words, intentions, motivations, attitudes, opinions, and actions of others. The issue of doubt becomes crucial in relation to considering the teachings of mystics such as Sufi masters. Are these people telling the truth? Are they lying? Are they telling untruths but somehow have convinced themselves they are telling important truths about the nature of things? Another possibility, of course, is that we may resist the truth in what they say through the lies we tell ourselves. For instance, we may tell ourselves we have given the mystical perspective a fair hearing when we have not. We may tell ourselves we have no vested interest which might bias or prejudice our judgments concerning mysticism, but in reality we do have such vested interests. We may tell ourselves we have an open mind about where the truth lies, but in fact our attitudes, interests, priorities, and desires would not permit us to consider anything as true except that which we already believe to be the case. Whom should we doubt? The mystics or ourselves? How far should we carry this doubt? What are the origins of our doubt? What will satisfy our doubts? 
How do we go about resolving our doubts? These are all very important questions. Not everyone who claims to be a Sufi master is one. Consequently, sometimes there are legitimate reasons for an individual to entertain doubts concerning the alleged authenticity of a teacher. As best one can, and there are limits to what one can accomplish on one's own, one ought to go through a period of questioning and reserving judgment about such claims. Reflect on the matter. Meditate about it. Speak to other people. Read books. If one can, talk to the person who may or may not be a genuine Sufi teacher. Obviously, one also should question one's own motives, attitudes, and intentions in this whole process. If one is sincere in the way one explores such doubts, the Sufi masters indicate God will guide one to correct resolution of the question concerning authenticity. Of course, they also indicate one ought to have a healthy doubt concerning the extent of one's sincerity during this exploration. Once one decides to take the step of initiation and the teacher is prepared to accept the responsibility of guiding the individual, the problem of doubt does not end. Doubt is a prominent tool in the arsenal of the false self. The false self does not disappear upon initiation. Rather, initiation is, in effect, a declaration of war between the allies of the true self and the allies of the false self. The forces of the false self use doubt to bait ambushes of constantly changing character. The command and control centers of the false self orchestrate terrorist raids by various cells of doubt. The intelligence operatives use doubt to demoralize the allies of the true self by generating confusion and uncertainty. Doubt is used to mount campaigns of disinformation which sow the seeds of distrust and suspicion in the hearts of the allies of the true self. When one is going through difficult times in the path, as such times are unavoidable, one will begin to doubt many things. Among other things, there will be attempts on the part of the allies of the false self to seduce the individual into doubting the authenticity of the teacher's knowledge or ability or love or guidance or compassion or understanding and so on. If one allows oneself to be seduced in this manner, one will have come in all likelihood to the end of any possibility of journeying further or making spiritual progress on the spiritual path. This is so because according to the Sufi masters, journeying on the path is, by God's grace, made possible through the initiate's spiritual relationship to the teacher or guide. By doubting the authenticity of the teacher, in effect, the lifeline which nourishes and sustains the individual on the path has been sabotaged. If the damage cannot be repaired, the path will become impassable with respect to any possibility of forward spiritual movement. The critical nature of the dire consequences which ensue from becoming entangled in doubts about the authenticity of one's teacher has a further twist to it. Pseudo-mystical teachers will use precisely this warning to bind initiates to them. More specifically, when legitimate doubts arise about the propriety of the quote-unquote teacher's conduct or instructions in the case of an unauthentic guide, the quote-unquote teacher will blame the victim of his or her manipulations and misguidance. Such quote-unquote teachers will say these kinds of doubts are but the activities of the allies of the false self, trying to sever the spiritual relationship between quote-unquote guide and initiate, and therefore the initiate 
should suppress all such doubts. The realm of doubt is a very tricky affair. In fact, this realm is so puzzling, frustrating, and depressing, many people despair of ever resolving the problems entailed by the issue of doubt. Many of these people withdraw altogether from seeking to step onto the mystical path. When this occurs, doubt has won another victory. This is so because people who withdraw under these circumstances have succumbed to the relentless pressure of the ego as it casts doubt on the whole mystical enterprise. One must learn to swim in the sea of doubt, amidst all of its currents, waves, and storms. Moreover, while swimming in this sea, one's safety is enhanced considerably if one can tell the difference between a shark and a dolphin. You have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations Podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion. Mm-hmm.